Well, hello, church. Good to be with all of you here in the worship center and everybody that is joining us online today. Can I just say something? It is cold outside. Would you agree with me about that? Yes, it is. It is so cold that we had a water main break right in front of the building. It, it, it is so cold that this morning I couldn't get my dogs to go outside. It's like they looked at me and said, why don't you go first? And so <laughs> I decided not to do that, which is a good thing. Anyway, I am really glad that all of you are here. Before we go any further, uh, here's the truth about us as a church. Uh, sometimes we have bittersweet experiences, and we're having one of those today as we're saying farewell to Pastor Jerry Connor and his wife, Diana. They've been with us for seven years, and uh, they have helped us immerse ourselves more deeply in prayer. And so the imprint of more devotion and more experiences of prayer, uh, they have led us in that, and then plus led us in the whole idea of mission and uh, church planting. We have planted four churches, vibrant churches in the past uh, seven years. We've engaged in mission work in India and Sierra Leone and uh, Ecuador and Greece. And uh, we are so, so pleased about their ministry among us. They're going to be going to serve as the executive director of the Kansas City Kansas Baptist Association, that's about 65 churches just to the west of, uh, west of us, and going to be giving leadership to them, encouragement to them, and helping them plant churches as well. Would you join me in uh, thanking God for Jerry and Diana? And if you're uh, in the building today, you're encouraged. We're going to move this, uh, move them. We're going to move them down toward the west side. And so, if you'll just uh, be socially distanced, but express to them your appreciation for their ministry and God's speed to them and God's bless to them as they head on into their new ministry. And uh, if you're not here in person, just uh, send a note of appreciation uh, to us here at the church building, and we'll make sure that we get that information to them. There was a number of years ago, there was a world-renowned linguist and scholar of classics by the name of Evie Rue, who translated Homer into modern English for the Penguin classic book series. And it was like, it was like a major, major uh, move in the whole world of publishing. And his publishers were so impressed with what he had done, they asked him as a scholar and as a linguist and as a person who was devoted to uh, understanding the classics, if he'd be willing to undertake translating the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, into modern English. And uh, as a scholar, he was intrigued, but here's the deal. All of his life, he had been an agnostic. And so he was not actually, didn't actually believe that any of the stuff was true, going into it, but he was fascinated with translating languages. And his son said this of his dad, it will be interesting what my father does with the four gospels, but it will be more interesting what the four gospels do to my father. And he didn't have to wait very long. Within a year of beginning his translating work, this 
agnostic, like, lifelong agnostic, came to the point of understanding the person of Jesus Christ being exactly who he says he is and who was testified uh, by the four gospel writers and others, and so he became a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Now, what's marvelous about this testimony is that it's not the only time that this has ever happened. I can take you to a number of individuals, two that are a bit more modern. You've got C.S. Lewis, and then you've got Josh McDowell, and one more, uh, Lee Strobel, individuals who were either agnostics or atheists, who were challenged to immerse themselves in the Scripture, and in the midst of immersing themselves in the Scripture, a couple of them trying to disprove that Jesus actually was who he says he was, they had an encounter that absolutely changed their lives. There is power in God's Word and an open heart. And I can tell you from my own story, there have been numerous times in my life the transforming work that the Word of God has had in my own life, whether that is helping me to realize my need for Jesus at the age of 18, or whether that was helping me understand my calling as a pastor, or being a husband, or being a father, or being a witness to Him. The number one researched evidence of how you can experience transformation in your life as, a, as far as a follower of Jesus is concerned is Bible engagement. So if you want to be changed, if you want to grow, if you want to become more of who God wants you to be, it's not going to happen apart from the practice and the discipline of engaging yourself in the Scripture. And so what we started last week is we started we started a study of the gospel of Mark. We're going to engage in a series. We're calling it Simply Jesus, and we're going to walk through it, and we're going to keep two things in mind, two things in mind. Number one, what will engaging in Mark make of me? And number two, what will it make of the people that I have the privilege of having any kind of influence on in my life. If, if what could be said of us after we go through Mark, it's interesting what we will make of Mark, but it will be of greater interest what God does through the gospel of Mark in making of our lives. We're joining 300 other churches, Kansas City and around the world, singing the same song that we just sang a minute ago here in the worship center, Jesus is our King. And we're engaging in reading the same scriptures together. And if you've not downloaded the Bible.is app, I would encourage you to, uh, to go to your mobile device and do so. We're going to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John starting on the 17th of February all the way up to Easter. And then... We're going to spend some time inviting a few friends to join us in watching the Gospel of Mark. It's basically going to be read. There's going to be video behind it. And then after we read a chapter or so, there are a number of questions that we can ask and simply dialogue about. And so this isn't using somebody else's study guide. This isn't using what somebody else has written about the Gospel of Mark. It's just going to be the scripture, 
us, some friends, and the Holy Spirit, and we're believing that transformation is going to take place because we are simply engaging in the Scripture. So, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to take an introduction to Jesus that we started last week, and I'm just going to continue on to it, continue with it. And, and, and the thing about Mark is this. Have you, ever, have you ever heard somebody get up to introduce somebody before they speak, and they go into all of these superlatives, and they tell you everything that they have ever done, and it's like a five-minute introduction before the guy ever gets up to speak? Well, Mark doesn't do that. Mark is just like, boom, here we go. If you're looking for a fast-paced, direct blow in terms of who the person of Jesus is, then Mark is your man. And I want you to keep two things in mind as we go through Mark. Mark is going to emphasize at least two major themes. Number one, who is Jesus? He's going to focus on the identity of Jesus, and related to that, he focuses on the question, what is a disciple? What is a follower of Jesus? And if we don't get right who the person of Jesus is, we're not going to get right what it means to be a follower of Christ. All that being said, if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to the very first chapter. We're going to look at verses... 1 through 13, and we're going to consider two things that Mark is introducing us to in terms of the person of Jesus. If you want to know anything about the identity of Jesus, if you want to know anything about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, you need to understand the preparation of Jesus and the affirmation of Jesus. Preparation of Jesus and the affirmation of Jesus. Here we go, Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. The beginning of, G of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's just pause for a minute. Last week, we spent the entire message just focusing in on that one verse. Mark is saying this. God is here as he promised. In the Old Testament, there were all of these promises about Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the delivered one, the one who would deliver us from our sins he has shown up. He is here with us. He is one of us. He understands what it's like to be us. God, a very God in our midst. As it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, see, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John wore camel hair, a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locust and wild honey. Quite a sight, would you agree? Here's a guy that was totally dependent on God to clothe him and to feed him. The first guy who knew anything about clean eating. Here he is right there, eating locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, one who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. 
I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Immediately, and as you read the gospel of Mark, this is going to be said 41 different times. Immediately. There's a sense of urgency in the gospel of Mark. Immediately, the spirit drove him into the wilderness he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels were serving him. Mark wants us to understand who Jesus is, and he's letting us know who Jesus is by focusing, first of all, on the preparation for Jesus. And there are a couple of ways that I want you to think about it. Not only was the way prepared for Jesus, but John is preparing a way for us to be ready for activity from God. That's exactly what he was doing in those days. He was getting the people ready for some new activity of God. So what does Mark do? Mark wants us to know that before Jesus arrived on the scene, the Old Testament anticipated predicted and prepared the way for him. And so what does, what does Mark do? Mark goes to the Old Testament immediately and says, hey, this is what was said in the prophet Isaiah. And he actually quotes three different verses of scripture from, from Malachi 3, Isaiah 40, verse 3, Exodus 23, verse 20. And he's saying, as is written in the prophet Isaiah, verses 2 through 3. And he quotes all of this scripture. And what's a, what's a fascinating thing to do about the Bible is when you hear one writer echoing something that's been written by another writer, and this happens all the time in the New Testament, the writers go back and they say, this is what the Old Testament had to say. The Bible is saying there is a messenger that has come ahead of Jesus to prepare the way. There is a voice and Mark's referring to John the baptizer, a prophet from God who was sent by God to prepare the way for Jesus. Now, what's interesting is that back in ancient days, often before a king would arrive, he would send a messenger out to get everybody ready. And not only would he make an announcement, hey, you need to get ready because the king is coming, but he would actually get the roadways prepared as well so that the king had a smooth, straight entrance into the place where the people are. And so John is saying, listen, you need to get prepared. Someone of authority is coming. It says that he is a, a voice that was crying out in the wilderness. And so the Jewish people would have understand that the wilderness had a couple of meanings for them. Not only was it this wasteland that was uh, right close to the Dead Sea, but they knew that the wilderness was representative of the fact 
But the people of God for 40 years wandered in the wilderness because of their sin and rebellion before they ever entered into all of the promises that God had for them. And it's as if John is saying this. You are in your own spiritual wilderness. You're not entering into all the promises of God because there's something in your life that is keeping you from experiencing the activity of God in this place. And he's saying, listen, you need to walk out of your spiritual wilderness, trust in Jesus, and enter into all that this new life that God has for you. So how do you get prepared for Jesus? Well, John says there are three ways to get prepared. Number one, repent. Number two, confess. Number three, be baptized. These are all indications that you are responsive to the coming of the new activity of God. It says that he was calling for them to repent for the forgiveness of their sins. Now, what's involved in repentance? Now, if I were to simply go around and we were to pull the folks in the building in the chapel or you guys online, oftentimes when people hear the word repent, all they can think of is like some pointed finger from a judgmental preacher type person pointing the finger, calling out sin, and you don't realize that repentance isn't so much a pointed finger of condemnation, it's an invitation to experience something new. To repent means, first of all, that you change the way you think, and second of all, you return to God. You change the way you think, and you return to God. So in Mark's gospel, he is challenging our thinking, and some of the thinking that he is challenging is Sometimes we think that being a follower of God means that Jesus is going to make our lives super easy. Or we think being a follower of Jesus is more about feeling good than it is about doing God's will. Now, there's nothing wrong with feeling good, and there's nothing wrong with life being easy. And it doesn't mean that if you're experiencing something easy, you are somehow not following God's will. But oftentimes in our culture, the collective thought about being a follower of Jesus means that we just live in the blessing of easiness and comfort. And Mark's challenging that way of thinking. And then he's saying basically to repent means we need to return to God. So Let's think honestly for just a minute. Is there evidence in your life or mine that you have walked away from God or you are walking away? Is there any evidence right now that you could go, yeah, I used to be walking really close. In, the old, uh, in Jesus' day, to be a disciple of someone was to be so close to the rabbi, so close to the teacher that when the teacher walked in the dirt, the dirt of his feet would get on the person. You would be in such close proximity to Christ. Well, maybe we don't have any dirt on us at all because we have stepped so far away from following close after 
Christ? What would be evidence? Maybe the evidence you ask yourself is, has apathy have creeped into my life? Am I just pretty much apathetic towards the things of God? Is my way of thinking and acting contrary to the very faith that I am claiming? So to get prepared for Jesus, John says, listen, there needs to be repentance, and there also needs to be confession of sin. Think of confession of sin as just being honest with God about yourself. That's what it is. Now, I may have told you this before, but it's worth telling you again. I grew up in uh, the Catholic church, and I remember that part of growing up is that you had to go to confession for the first time. And confession is a good thing. Uh, and so I was taught what I need to do, and I went in and I went to confession for the first time, and there was a priest there, and I was just going to be honest with him. And uh, do you know what I did the first time I went to confession? I lied. Doesn't that seem to like defeat the whole purpose? of going to confession, I was so embarrassed. You know, what did you, you know, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. This is my first confession. Well, tell me your sin, my, my young friend, my young brother. Well, I, I stole a quarter from my sister. Well, is that all? Yeah. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think, do you think a six, seven-year-old is capable of doing a little more devious stuff than just stealing a quarter from his sister? Thank you very much. I'm glad somebody was a sixth grader at one point or a six-year-old at one point in time. You know, that's right. I was not really honest with the priest, and some of us are adults, and we're not honest with God about what it is that we have, we have done. We have a difficult time admitting the truth about who we are, even saying, I could have done something like that. Now, confession of sin doesn't mean you beat yourself up and feel horrible about yourself. It isn't about that kind of condemning. It's about simply, confession to means, means this, to speak the same thing as. So when I confess my sin, I am simply speaking the same thing about my sin that God does. And that is that it's what separates me from him. And the only way to have that separation spanned is through being truthful with God and confessing my sin, knowing 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to keep on cleansing you of all unrighteousness. So John says, the preparation for Jesus, he prepared the way, he got the people ready, he says, repent, confess your sins, and as an outward sign of the inward change, be baptized. Baptism is the outward act of an inward change. When you have said yes to Christ, you identify with him through baptism. Just as Jesus was buried, your sin is buried. Just as Jesus rose from the dead, you are raised to live a new kind of life for God. It's a step of obedience. It's a signal that you have changed. Now, what's fascinating that you and I might not know or might not even think about is that John was talking to religious people, Jewish people, 
about their need to be baptized, and you're going, well, what's the big deal about that? Oftentimes, the only people that were baptized were converts, Jew, uh, Gentile converts to the Jewish faith. And so what John is saying is, you really need to become as if you don't know God at all and you're wanting to step into this relationship with God. And, and underlying that, it's as if John is saying this, sometimes the very thing that keeps us from knowing God and keeps us separated from God and keeps us not living in the fullness of God's love for us is our religion. Our religion can become a hindrance to us. And he's saying, listen, you need to put the religion aside and begin again, just begin brand new. And the thing that John does in all of this preparation is he makes sure that he says, listen, I don't want you to get all focused on me, the messenger. I want you to get focused on the one that I am bringing the message about. He magnifies Jesus in his preparation and not himself. It says in verse 7, the one who is more powerful than I, that's the one who is coming, is coming um, more powerful than I, is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. John recognized his place in the plan of God. It, it, this isn't false humility. This isn't John saying, well, hey, listen, I'm just, I'm just a nobody. This is John understanding who he wasn't and who Jesus is. He said, I'm not, I'm not worthy because I have an understanding of my part to play in the grander story of God. I am simply a messenger. I'm just simply somebody that's getting the way prepared. I'm simply giving to you guys a message. Repent, confess your sin, be baptized so that you can be ready for the new activity of God. And here's what I take from that. My story is wrapped up in his story. I have found that I am most fulfilled in life not when I am seeking fulfillment, but when I am seeking Jesus and to fulfill his purpose for my life. There is sometimes the all-out pursuit of personal happiness that never actually materializes in bringing you happiness. But in an all-out pursuit of Jesus and fulfilling his purpose, that's where a true sense of joy and happiness really comes from. What it means is that we are both less than and more than we think. John's message and baptism were preparation so that we could be ready to meet and trust Jesus Christ. John said, I immerse you in water as a symbol of the change that has happened, but there is one that is coming who is going to immerse you in the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the power and the presence of God, and he's saying, listen, you and I need to be immersed in a power that is greater than ours and a presence that is never going to leave us. And he says, Jesus has come to do that. So let me introduce you to Jesus. Jesus is the one that we need to be prepared for 
his coming and moving in our life. And the second thing is this. In my introduction to you of Jesus, I want to talk to you a little bit about the affirmation of Jesus. In verse 9, it says that Jesus was baptized by John, not because he needed baptism because he sinned. It said in Matthew that he was baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness. In verses 10 and 11, listen to the affirmation. As soon as he came up out of the water, as soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you're my beloved son with you, I am well pleased. The instant Jesus came up out of the water, a physical manifestation of the Holy Spirit descended on him from above. Mark says it was visible like a dove. And that may not mean much to you. You may be looking at that and you're going, oh, well, that's, that's interesting. But if you were a Jewish person, you would understand how incredibly rare and unique this is. In the Old Testament, there was only really one place of the Spirit of God descending or moving like a dove, and that's found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. At creation, it says, the Spirit hovered over the surface of the waters, and the Hebrew word for hover is the word flutter. The Spirit fluttered over the face of the waters. And to capture the vivid imagery, uh, the rabbis translated the Hebrew from, for the Targums like this, quote, and the earth was without form and empty and darkness was on the face of the deep and the spirit fluttered above the face of the waters like a dove and God spoke, let there be Three parties involved in creation. God, God's spirit, and God's word through which he creates. The same three present at Jesus' baptism. The father whose voice was heard, the son who was baptized, who is the word, and the spirit fluttering like a dove. And what it appears that Mark is deliberately doing is he is deliberately taking us all the way back to creation, to the very beginning of history. And just as the original creation of the world was the project of a triune God, Mark is saying, so is the redemption of the world. The rescue, the renewal of all things that is beginning right now with the arrival of King Jesus. This is the project of the triune God. Uh, the verses here in Mark parallel other passages in Matthew and Luke that feature uh, the Trinity. All three persons are God. The Father speaking, the Spirit descending, the Son seeing the Spirit without Without ceasing to be fully God, follow me for just a minute. This is really important. Without ceasing to be fully God, the three persons are distinct in that they interact with one another. 
Charles Swindoll put it like this. In other words, God doesn't emerge from the water as the sun, race up to heaven from the body of Jesus to utter an affirmation as the Father, and then fly down again as the Holy Spirit to become the Son again. On the contrary, God is shown in this passage to be three and one simultaneously. This is the doctrine of the Trinity, which says basically this, God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God, and there is one God. Let me introduce you to Jesus. He's so much more than you think he is. He is so much more. And it says, the voice from heaven says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus' identity is affirmed several times in the very few verse, first verses of Mark's gospel. At the very beginning of the gospel, Mark confesses that Jesus is the son of God. And here, the father confesses that Jesus is his son and that he has his approval. He knows the unique mission that he has given his son and he states confidence in him. And as a human, as a human, Jesus needed affirmation considering what it was he was about ready to face. Now, everybody right here for just a minute. When I read the passage of Scripture, did you notice what immediately happened after Jesus had this affirmation from God? What happened? He had temptation. He had temptation. It says immediately he was led into the wilderness. Immediately he was taken into a place of temptation. What is important for you to know is this. I tell people that are baptized this every single time. Don't be surprised. Following your baptism, you're going to experience all kinds of challenge and temptation because that's how the devil works. You have a high experience with God, and then he lowers the boom trying to take you off track. Jesus needed the affirmation from the Father that you're my beloved son. I'm well pleased with you, knowing that he was about ready to be tempted for 40 days and for 40 nights. He needed the affirmation because of what his ultimate destiny was going to be. He was going to conquer sin through suffering, through death on our behalf. He needed to know. He needed to be affirmed. He needed to be encouraged that when I look at you, I have a smile on my face because who you are before Jesus ever did a miracle, before Jesus ever forgave a sin, before Jesus ever taught anything, he heard the Father say, you're my beloved son, and I am pleased with you. It wasn't based upon performance. It was based upon the affection the Father had for the Son. Some of you need to drink that in. Because some of you are still awaiting 
for God to give you affirmation and you're thinking like I did before I came to Jesus. If I just do enough things and stop doing enough bad things, God is finally going to say, come on in. But it doesn't work that way. You can't perform your way into God's approval. You have to receive it coming from his grace. When you're facing fear, when you're feeling alone, when you're looking at temptation, when a new opportunity arises, remember that God looks at you and says, you are my adopted son. You are my adopted daughter, and I take great delight in you. I take great delight in you. The Greek Orthodox Church had one of their early church fathers try and describe what it was like to experience life with the Trinity. One of them painted a picture that had representatives of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit around a round table because nobody would be at the head of a round table. They were all united. They were all equal. They were all deferential. Not one of them said, hey, the rest of you need to orbit around me. It was as if they were doing a circle dance with each other of unity and community and transparency and love. And the image is this. When you are willing to say yes to Jesus, God is inviting you to get in the middle of the circle dance and experience the life that exists between Father, Son, and Spirit. Life with God. And if you allow your minds for just a moment to have some holy imagination, imagine the relationship that exists between Father, Son, and Spirit for all of eternity. They've never had to question one another. They've never been envious of one another. There has always been joy. There has always been peace. There has always been acceptance. There has always been love. That's what exists in the relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit. And to have eternal life, to have life with God, the life of God is to be invited into that relationship so that you and I can experience that with them and so that we can experience that with other believers. There's nothing quite like life with God that is given to us through the person of Jesus. Do you know him? Do you know him as he is? Let me go back to the first two questions. As we engage today, you ask yourself the question, what am I making of the gospel? But more importantly, what is this making of me, and what is it making of the people God wants me to influence? Let's pray. God, you have come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. You have introduced us to yourself, and you've let us know that if we want to know who you really are, we simply need to know Jesus, and I thank you that you have revealed Jesus to us, and I thank you that your spirit opens our eyes and opens our hearts to see him and to receive. And I'm praying this day we will do that. Some individuals today need to accept the invitation to come into this divine dance and then to let you take the lead for the rest of their life. And I pray that they will. I pray that they will simply do what 
John said to do, repent, confess sins, enter that relationship, and as a result of that, take the step of identification through baptism. God, I thank you that you're a God who affirms us. I thank you that you're a God who takes delight in us. And I pray that we will take our delight in you as well. And I pray this through Jesus Christ, and we all said together, amen.